0: To Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Dr. David Wilcox begins his new book with these sentences. Healthcare is complex and that is not an accident. It is a strategy on the part of those who benefit from your healthcare dollars to keep the general public from knowing what's really going on in the healthcare system. He's a healthcare professional who has uh, worked uh, over three decades uh, in, uh, as a, uh, a, excuse me, my, my uh, okay, as a bedside nurse, a hospital administrator, and in healthcare information technology. And he's written a handbook in layperson's terms to guide the average American on how to be a partner in their care. His book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a Patient's Handbook for Survival, brings his, brings him to our show now. Welcome. Hey, Leonard, thanks for having me. Oh, well, of course, this is really important stuff. But you you include a number of disclaimers. Uh, Why did you feel that was necessary? That was basically um, what I was consulted to do, is to put the disclaimers
1: in so that somebody doesn't just follow uh, what's in the book, you know, to the letter of the T. I mean, you know, healthcare is ever evolving, right? So what's going on now um, may be different five years from now, just like we're seeing this variant of uh, the coronavirus continued to evolve. So um, that was the reason why I put the disclaimers in.
0: And you're not a medical doctor. Your background is in nursing to the point that you got a doctorate in in nursing practice. Did you witness many of the problems you write about in this book because you were a nurse?
1: Yes, because I was a nurse and because I was a hospital administrator. um, I saw quite a few things out there. And, um, you know, I when I, sat down and, uh, when I sat down to do this, I thought it was very important that this book be written from a nursing perspective. And the reason why I think that's important is I work with a lot of great doctors and the doctor comes in and diagnoses you, but then he turns you over to the nurse. Hmm. And the nurse is the one that gets you through your disease process. We're the ones that hold family members' hands while somebody's dying in the bed. I mean, we just go into those innermost spaces and i wanted to just pass on some knowledge to the layperson in the american healthcare system because it's very complex dealing with the american healthcare system can be a, a can be dangerous and i've seen those dangers out there and so what can you do to partner in your care and be safe while you're accessing the american healthcare system whether it's the hospital or if you have an insurance claim that's denied what are what are some of the things you can do or some of the strategies around that? Or if you go to the pharmacy and you have to decide between paying rent or buying food or picking up your high pharmaceutical prescriptions, um, high price pharmaceutical prescriptions. So um, just, you know, what can the average American do? And most importantly, the back of the book talks about how do we build a better system?
0: Well, we'll get to that later. But uh, you you Point, you warn that it's not an accident that healthcare is complex. You say it's a strategy on the part of those who benefit from your healthcare dollars to keep the general public from knowing what's really going on in the healthcare system. <laughs> that, it certainly is. But, but boy, um, I can give you an Is that, is that just an... totally American? Would uh, similar things be happening in other countries like England or the Scandinavian countries or France or Italy?
1: Not to the point that it happens in America. There's a lot of there's a lot of players vying for your health care dollars in America. So as an example, President Trump put out an executive order for price transparency in health care that took place or went into effect on January 1st of this year, which the Biden administration has kept. And so basically health providers, hospitals are supposed to list the costs of your health care in a customer friendly format on their website so that you can shop for your procedure. Now, 90, the stats that I just read, 94% of the hospitals haven't done that because they only get fined $300 a day, Mm -hmm. which is about $110,000 a year. So it's more cost advantageous to keep you in the dark about what your healthcare costs as opposed to putting this information out there for the general public to consume.
0: And when they they, they do release these, how much the procedures cost, don't they do it in medical coding?
1: Yes, exactly. In fact, that's... in have an example of that in my book. I'm based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, actually Concord, um, a little bit east of Charlotte. And I just looked in my hospital to see what a total knee would cost me without insurance. And all I got was coding. I mean, I am a doctorate prepared nurse, and I would not be able to figure that out. So, I mean, how's the general public going to figure that out? So, for instance, there is an, uh, an app called Healthcare Blue Book, And you can get that and it will give you the ballpark figure for a procedure in your area. Uh, And you can compare because if when I compared using it, I found that a total knee at the hospital would cost me $12,000 or my insurance company. Um, But if I went to an ambulatory surgery center and got the same total knee, it would cost me $8,000. So you can see there's... They really don't want you to shop and compare, especially if you have a high deductible, right, which you should be doing. I mean, that's being a partner in your healthcare. care. Uh, they just don't want that information out. Now, there is some legislation to increase that fine to $5,000 a day for hospitals over 30 beds, um, which would be a, a significant amount of money. So we would have to see um, if we got more price transparency for that. Other examples are, you can go to the pharmacy, one pharmacy, your prescription drug prices cost you $100. At another pharmacy, they'll cost you $40. I mean, where's the price transparency in that? And how do you know which pharmacy to go to?
0: And shouldn't you ask the uh, the doctor who's prescribing the drug to prescribe a generic if that's possible? Wouldn't that save you money? Or is there a <laughs> wide range of prices and generics as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so... Um- What people don't know is that there is this role that sits between the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company called a pharmacy benefit manager. A pharmacy benefit manager was a really good thing when they started it, when we started to get those plastic cards, because they were doing exactly what you just said. They're looking for generic prescriptions to save you money. They slowly got bought up by the pharmaceutical companies. And so they became a major player in that supply chain, because if the pharmacy benefit manager has a coupon or a rebate that oftentimes they keep the money from if your doctor writes and says you can you can fill this with a generic prescription and they have a coupon for a brand they're going to use that coupon thus increasing your cost while they pocket the difference so it's not that simple Um, You would think it would be that simple, but it's not. And if you try to call and talk to a pharmacy benefit manager, you can't get through to them. Hmm. So I know of an oncologist who was prescribing chemo for one of his patients, and he knew the person's background and he wanted to try a certain kind of chemo drug. Well, the insurance company called and said they weren't going to approve that chemo drug. They said that the pharmacy benefit manager said he needs to start with this chemo because it's not as expensive. And the physician demanded to talk to the person who made that decision. What kind of medical training do they have? And he could not get through to the pharmacy benefit manager. They said that was impossible for him to talk to the pharmacy benefit manager. So there's a lot of this that goes on in healthcare that not a lot of people know is going on, but it's driving up your costs like crazy. Um, and another really good example, Leonard, is we have a, a law on the books right now that says that medicare cannot negotiate drug prices Hmm. this costs uh, the regular this costs american citizens 11 billion dollars a year now
0: didn't the the biden plan hope to change that but uh well it hasn't been passed
1: yes it hasn't been passed but what they're what they're doing is they're saying any drug that's been out over seven years then you can negotiate the price Hmm. um but we'll see you know uh, uh the pharmaceutical industry spent $43 billion on the 2020 election across the aisle. So Hmm. everybody goes into office saying they're going to do something about high prescription drug prices. It is the most unregulated industry um, out there and nobody actually ever moves on it. I mean, this is a really easy bipartisan issue. That's the thing that's frustrating is because You could come across the aisle and do something for Americans by lowering these high prescription drug costs because we pay a lot more than other countries in the world. We cover the research and development, but nobody seems to be able to do it. They just don't make it a priority. And um, there's a reason for that.
0: Well, in the chapter that you've devoted to why prescriptions cost so much, you point out that pharmaceutical companies claim that they need to charge so much to fund research and development. But don't they receive funds from publicly funded research and and tax breaks for that research?
1: Yep. Those Viagra ads that you see in People magazine, they're all all tax deductible for these guys. Um, (laughs) They receive a lot of money. And if If that really is the case, if they really do need money for research and development, because we don't want to slow progress, then why isn't the rest of the world paying what we're paying? I mean, for for an example, let's talk about EpiPens. Epinephrine pens are used for severe allergic reactions. If you have a peanut allergy or if you have a shellfish allergy, um, then you're going to need an EpiPen in your medicine cabinet and probably one in your car. Uh, so and and you, you
0: and you write that this uh, in this case this is, involves you on a personal level. Yes, it
1: does. It's, my wife has to use epipens. Um, thankfully, not very often, but she has to use them. Uh, and so, epipens have gone up five hundred and seventy-four percent. Back in two thousand and six, you could get two epipens for ninety dollars and twenty-eight cents. In twenty twenty the price was $670. Mm. And they point to the fact there was legislation involved, funny how that works, um, that schools were going to get financially incentivized to have EpiPens available for kids with severe allergic reactions. So they cite that as a supply versus demand issue of why they went up so fast. Um, but if you buy one in the UK, it's $69 for uh, two EpiPens set. There's you know, we pay 10 times more in this country for EpiPens than they do in other parts of the
0: world. And hasn't Congress looked into why insulin, for example, costs so much more in the United States than in many other countries?
1: Yes, they did. They actually did look into that. It's funny that you bring that up because um, I was reading about, not a lot of people know this, but Walmart has um, generic prescriptions for around $4, many generic prescriptions. But they're also dealing with a manufacturer of insulin in Norway going direct to the source so that they can offer vials for right around $70 at Walmart because then people will come and shop, right? If they're getting their medications there. So it's a brilliant strategy. Now, remember, Medicare, we can't do that. We can't negotiate prices with the manufacturers for Medicare because there's a law that says we can't. The guy who actually wrote that law is working for a pharmaceutical foundation, making two million dollars a year. He was the guy who crammed it through, um, you know, the House and Senate. Well, so, who, who's that? Um, I don't know his name exactly, uh, but I'd have to I'd have to go back to my notes to find his name. But um, yeah, he's he's working for a pharmaceutical company.
0: Well, isn't insurance coverage? Uh, uh, well, sometimes it covers one medication, but not another. How does that work?
1: Yeah, it's not very transparent to know what your insurance company is is going to cover or even your procedures to take it a step up from medications. I know of a person personally who had a surgery done here in my local area, and they made sure they called the hospital. They wanted everybody in network. And so the hospital assured them that. And they ended up getting a bill from an anesthesiologist for $10,000 because it turns out he was not in network. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's just crazy.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Dr. David Wilcox. Uh, and uh, his book that we're discussing is How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, A Patient's Handbook for Survival. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, Dr. Wilcox, we all need health care at some points in our lives. But you write that when you throw the covers off the American healthcare care system, you reveal a lot of shady individuals all vying for your health care dollars. Don't, those of us with insurance coverage, just assume that will be taken well care of?
1: Yes, we do. Um, but the difference is that with the insurance coverage, like you alluded to earlier, you never know exactly what they're gonna cover and what they're not. So, um, you know, it, it's it's a guess. I mean, you can call, but that information isn't readily available to you. Um, so let me, let me give you a good example. Um, I had a dog, 16 years old, she was an English setter, her name was Pippi Lou, um, and she developed some heart problems. So the vet said, I'm going to prescribe Viagra for your dog, because it's a pulmonary, it was invented to be a pulmonary antihypertensive medication. Only when they found the side effect that it worked on erectile dysfunction, did it shoot up um, to astronomical
0: levels. You're making a pun there when you say it shot up? Okay, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything shot up, right??
1: <laughs> so my wife, she went to the pharmacy to fill a one month supply of it, and the pharmacy told her it would be over seven hundred dollars. Wow. Yeah. My wife said, well, I'm, I'm not gonna pay over seven hundred dollars. And so she went back out to her car and she downloaded an app called GoodRx. And GoodRx works with coupons and rebates, just like that pharmacy benefit manager that we talked about, they actually work with them. She was able to find it on the other side of town for $63 for a month's supply. Mm-hmm. My point being that if you can sell it for $63 and still return 15 to 25% profit to your shareholders, which is what pharmaceutical companies do, then what are you doing selling it across town for 700, over 700? You know, where's the difference in that? Who gets to keep that money?
0: But isn't there also a generic version of Viagra? What is it, Sildenafil, or something like that? Um, yes, there is. Yep. So shouldn't that have been offered to you as an alternative?
1: It wasn't, um, that, and that's a good point, but it should have been offered to us.
0: Has the Affordable Care Act improved the situation at all?
1: The thing that the Affordable Care Act did for for Americans was it granted more access to care. Um, and it set some parameters around how the insurance companies have to spend the money that they're taking in for premiums. So before the Affordable Care Act, um, we our healthcare system was a disaster because if you were working at a job, and let's say you developed uh, a renal disease and you needed dialysis three days a week, Okay. And your insurance covered that. If you went to another job, they would call it a pre-existing condition and and you would be on the hook for that cost. You've got to have dialysis to live. So what do you do? Um, The Affordable Care Act took care of that for us so that, you know, insurance companies can't be screaming, you know, a previous condition, we're not covering it. And they were only spending 60 to 65% of your premium dollar on healthcare. Now they have to, if it's a large insurance company, spend 85%. So during COVID, when nobody was going to the hospital and except with COVID, they were raking in all this money. And the Affordable Care Act said that they had to pay this money back within three years. So they, at first they weren't covering COVID. And then once they started sitting on the surplus of money that they would have to give back to to the people who were insured, they started to pay for COVID. So it's really interesting how that game works. Hmm. Um, I think that the worst thing that the Obama administration did was they didn't advertise and tell people, your premiums are gonna get jacked up. It's not really, Obamacare, it's insurance companies because now they have to go more at risk and they have to pay more money. So, of course, they're going to try to you know, keep the same profit margin and they jacked up everybody's insurance.
0: Well, the, the, the program was originally proposed by a conservative group. I think it was the Heritage Foundation. And there was Romney Care in Massachusetts before it became Obamacare. So, it's interesting how it has become a, a political football.
1: Yeah, it really is, because um, it, it worked very well in Massachusetts. And like you said, it was modeled after that model. So,
0: Now, you offer advice uh, about what to do if you have to go to a hospital and how to handle an insurance company's claim denial. What what reasons do they usually give other than pre-existing condition?
1: Well, uh, they, they also will tell you that it's just not a covered service. Um, in the book, I talk about trying to settle my aunt's estate and I, and my aunt never had any children. I was a son. She never had. I, like I said, I lived down near Charlotte. Um, and she lived in Syracuse, New York. So I was trying to settle her claim and there, and the insurance company was denying some IV supplies that she had to have. I mean, you know, she had cancer and, um, and she had to have IVs. And so I would call the insurance company and they would say, well, you know, the person who handles that isn't in there on vacation. Um, and I would say, Well, certainly you have a backup. And they would say, Well, no, um, you'll have to call back next week. So I'd call back next week, be put on hold for 40 minutes and then get disconnected. Um, and so while I was in Syracuse, I was having dinner with a physician friend of mine, a medical doctor. And I said, oh, I'm trying to settle this estate, but this insurance company is just not working with me at all. And he said, Oh, you wanna call you wanna call the senator's office? I was like, What? Why do I wanna call the senator's office? And he said, because they'll take care of it. And he said, just try it. And so I did. I called the senator's office and I was put on a brief hold. And within like 30 or 40 seconds, I had an aide on the phone. I told him which insurance company it was. I told him what was going on. And he said to me, oh, we've got we've got someone over there. Don't worry about it. We'll get this settled for you. Five days later, I got a notice that it was settled. Two weeks later, I had to check. So not a lot of average Americans know that you can actually contact your political official who, who's supposed to be working for you and actually settle it that way um, when the insurance company is, you know, browbeating you over a bill. They really hope that you'll just get frustrated and walk away so that they can keep the difference.
0: Sometimes when you uh, leave a job or you stop being in a union, you lose that coverage by an insurance company and you're forced to go to another one. But it doesn't seem to be be any way to, to keep the the, uh, the the same things in place?
1: Yeah. In America, unfortunately, your insurance is really tied to your job. I am fortunate enough to be able to work for a company um, in my day job that is self-insured. So they they drive their own costs down. They incentivize us. Um, we're accountable, right? So that you know, our, my Fitbit, um, and people's Apple watches all go up into the cloud and they can see the steps that we're walking every day and they give us a couple of dollars off our premium if we're meeting our goals. Um, they also do a health check on me once a year and if I'm obese or I'm smoking, I'm going to pay more for my insurance than, it, than I would if I was working on my healthcare, actively working on it. And that's a model that's difficult for Americans to swallow um, because accountability in healthcare is something we really haven't addressed before.
0: You note that 30 percent of every dollar we spend goes to the administrative branch of healthcare, and that our healthcare system is spending about twice as much on administrative costs as other, as other countries that provide similar healthcare. Yep,
1: we spend 17 percent of our GDP on healthcare. Wow. So think about this in broad terms: healthcare is one fifth of our economy, soon to be one fourth of our economy. So there isn't a big rush to get out there and fix it. Um, but with us spending that much money, we are dead last in quality outcomes. Other industrialized countries spend about 8.7 percent of their GDP on healthcare, care. Um, but we spend more money and we're dead last in quality outcomes. It's a crazy model. And like not a lot of Americans know that.
0: Your first chapter is headed what to know before you go to the hospital. Does it matter whether you're suffering from a ruptured appendix or if you've come down with one of the COVID variants?
1: Yeah. So if you're if you're going um, to the hospital with a ruptured appendix and it's an emergent, get to the hospital. If it's emergent, get to the hospital. You know, you can you can do everything else or have somebody bring your medications in later and stuff like that. But you know, in an emergency, you want to get there. Um, if it's not an emergent situation. Uh, in the book, I talk about having a list of your medications and supplements, and most importantly, knowing what you're taking them for. I can't tell you how many patients I've seen. who So like I take that green pill and that blue pill. Well, do you know what it's for? And they don't and you have to educate them. So first of all, to your listeners, I would say if you don't know what your medications are for, schedule some time with the nurse or the medical technologist at your doctor's office to go over your med list. Second of all, put it on your computer and print off multiple copies if you're not going emergently to the hospital. And don't think that the people that are taking care of you are actually discussing what medications you're on. Hand a copy to everybody you interact with. Hand a copy to your intake nurse, Hand a copy to, if you're having surgery to your surgeon, hand a copy to the anesthesiologist. Make sure everybody knows what medications you're taking. The other little trick that not a lot of people know is you can bag up your medications and take them to the hospital and ask the hospital to use them. It'll save you money and you'll be ensured that you're getting the right medications.
0: You suggest that you bring a copy of your healthcare proxy and your living will if you have them. Why? Yes, definitely.
1: Definitely. Definitely, because you never know what's going to happen in a hospital situation. I mean, i've I've worked with, I've worked on patients that were that looked fine one moment, and then they were, coding the next moment. And we're getting the paddles out, shocking them. Um, you just never know what's going to happen. So it's better to have all of your paperwork on file at the hospital than not to have your paperwork on file. Because if you get into a situation where people don't know what you're what you want for end-of-life care, they're going to do everything they can to keep you alive, even if that's not what you want. So in the book, I give an example of my stepfather and my mother. Now, my stepfather kept a copy of his do not resuscitate order in his wallet, and he got into a very bad car accident, broke all four of his limbs. Um, they never found his copy of his DNR. So when I my mother called me, I called the hospital immediately, and this is during COVID, you know, we're Nobody can go see anybody, um, and I said, "You know, did you guys check his wallet? Because he's got a do not resuscitate order in his wallet." They're like, "No, we can't find the wallet." Well, twenty minutes later, they call me back. They found the wallet. They have got the order, but you know, he's already in the ICU mm-hmm. on a ventilator. Um, you know, they're making plans to fix his broken bones and all of that. Now, my mother, she had a do not resuscitate order also, and she had a, a really bad heart, and so when her time came. Uh, She basically called the ambulance. They came to take her and we knew we had explored with one of the best interventional cardiologists in the country, what could be done for her and what couldn't. And um, they took her into the emergency department where she had all her paperwork and my mother was not the most together person, um, but was able to give that to the clinical staff to say, you know, this is how I want to be treated. And then they called me to say, your mother's here having a heart attack. Now, granted, I'm I'm very prepared. know i've been very well trained in my career and so they said you know we want to take her up to the cath lab and i buckled i was like yeah take her to the cath lab they were going to intubate her and all that thank god they called me back about three minutes later and said hey the situation's changed your mother's not going to make it Hmm. and um she died peacefully Um, Hmm. but had she not had all that paperwork she would have gotten beaten up and even me as her son i went into sun mode right i you know i should have. I should have said no that's not what she wanted so it's really important that you pick the person who's going to be your health care proxy and they understand exactly what you want done because we're nobody gets out of life alive right and so, so you put down we lose sure that, a
0: lot of our independence when we're admitted to a hospital oh and, yes
1: we do definitely and,
0: and you also suggest uh ways to deal with a doctor who doesn't allow us to ask questions
1: yes definitely the medical staff work for you, not the other way around. So, a lot of people don't understand that, but you can, if you have a doctor who's not letting you participate in your care, you can ask for a different doctor. Um, you can also talk to the uh, department director, who's usually a nurse, and say, you know, I want I want to explore other options. I don't like this guy's bedside manner. He's not listening to me. Um, that I've, plenty of examples in the book where that happened to my family and, you know, and what they had to do to get care. Um, and so you can get a different doctor. If it's after hours, you can ask them to call the uh, the nurse who's in charge of the hospital for the night, and they'll come and help you with the situation, too.
0: But as I said, you still lose a lot of your independence when you're admitted to a hospital. Yeah, um. you certainly do. It's going to be
1: interesting to watch, Leonard, um, with all of the changes that happened with the staffing shortage so you know throwing money at people t- to work and siphoning off resources um, isn't really the answer because i know nurses now who are saying well i'm not going to work till 2023 i made all this money during covid um, so we now we're faced with a staffing shortage um, but i think you're going to see the model change and we're already seeing the change in some areas um, to more of a hospital at home. So what we're finding is that people do much better if they can stay in their home environment. If they don't need to be monitored in a hospital, but they need to be cared for by a home care nurse who comes in and maybe sets up their medications for the week, or we can even put a hospital bed in. Um, we We can do wireless blood pressure cuffs and have the information feed to the doctor's office. There's no reason for people to be in dirty, germy environments if they're not critically ill. And I think mm. with this staffing shortage, we're going to see a change in health care where hospitals are going to be emergency departments, intensive care units and step down areas. You, and you a, about, a lot of the care will be given at home.
0: You mentioned germy areas. Can't hospitals be dangerous because you can acquire many different types of infections while you're in one?
1: Oh yeah, I've heard many many a doctor say to a patient, "My job is to get you out of here as fast as possible and get you out of here without acquiring any any kind of an infection." Yes, you definitely can acquire an infection. One of the things that I mentioned is if your family's coming to see you, or if a doctor's coming to see you, or if a nurse is coming in the room, observe them wash washing their hands for at least twenty seconds. You don't know what the guy in the bed next to you has, um, and you, d- you definitely don't want to pick it up.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. to Dr. Wilcox, Dr. David Wilcox, his book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, a patient's uh, handbook for survival. Um, Now you point out that in the medical community, poor performing people are sometimes allowed to continue to practice. How can we know whether the doctor in charge has a good track record?
1: So you can actually go up to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, website, CMS.gov. So we're
0: googling. We go into a hospital and immediately start googling things.
1: No, you do it before you get in the hospital. You want to make sure, like you
0: ch- even check out
1: your your family practitioner that you have. You want somebody with at least four star ratings or above out of five stars. Um, you can check your hospital, the hospital system I told you about in my community had two star rating, and I got to experience why in the emergency department one night. But um. Yeah, there are people out there that are, have bad hands or bad judgment or maybe both. And I talk about that in the book when I was in my local community and I was at a grocery store and I heard these uh, two women talking. And one of them said, I'm going to go have this procedure done on uh, Monday by Dr. So-and-so. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, because I've taken care of his patients. And he had he had bad outcomes, according, you know, according to his partners who had better outcomes and you know, obviously nothing was done to course correct that internally. So I'm thinking to myself, boy, do I say something? Mm-hmm. And uh, this lady starts to come down the aisle that I'm in. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, but I overheard your conversation. And um, I can't tell you who I am, but I work at the hospital and I really need you to consider the person who's going to do this procedure because he doesn't have great quality outcomes. Um, you know, perhaps you want to go to somebody else in the practice. And she was dumbfounded. and she just looked at me and she said, well, thank you. Oh, and great. I said, thank you. And when I saw her in the hospital, she was not under his care. But the point being that, you know, it was a community environment, so I could get away with that. But if I was prepping her for surgery for this guy, um, that would have been totally inappropriate and I could have been fired, mm-hmm. even though it was probably the right thing to do. So, you know, there's limitations when you're attached to a facility or you work at a facility. Um, and healthcare, especially nurses in healthcare, really want to help people. And I thought about that story when I was writing this book. And I thought, you know, that was one person I was able to help. When I can get this book out into the hands of, People who really want this information, I'm going to help a lot more than one person, um, and you know they're going to start to be an active part of their healthcare. And that's what inspired me to sit down and, and put this together. Oh,
0: but you've you said, "quote As a healthcare professional, I am amazed by the lack of proactive patient teaching information available to the general public. Most often, healthcare information is shared with you only after you are diagnosed with a condition." That's correct.
1: So one of the worst models for for, um, patient teaching that you see in a hospital is we allow you to sit in the bed all day long for the most part um, or get out of the chair. You know, there's nothing to do really. Your backside's exposed. Um, I'm sure if anybody's been in a hospital, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And then when you're ready to get out and you're tired because you've been listening to beeps and you're, you know, you're just. You can't take in information. Then we'll come in, the nurse will come in and we'll sit down and we'll do all this patient teaching and get you to sign some papers when all you're thinking about is, I can't wait to get out of this room and back to my own bed. Um, it's a terrible, terrible model that, that we've used for years. I'm starting to see some things change in that model. So there's, there are some hospitals who are getting like, uh, TVs, basically TVs, computers, that you can actually watch videos if you're newly diagnosed with a condition like congestive heart failure. You can watch videos. You can learn about lifestyle changes that you can make while you're sitting in the bed and you don't have anything else to do. That's the best way to absorb the information that gives you the ability to talk to your nurse and say, hey, you know, I saw this and um, I got a couple of questions as opposed to us just throwing everything at you when you're getting ready to leave.
0: But uh, it seems to me one of the most disturbing things you point out is that medical errors have been found to be the third leading cause of death in the United States. Now, how much of that is due to to bad doctors and how much of it is due to medication errors?
1: Yeah, if you're going to get hurt in a hospital, it's going to center around medications. That's why I... I Gave the advice that you can bag up your own medications and take them with you um and then ask questions about anything you see that that they're not giving you um and you, and you it, suggest asking, it, asking
0: the nurse for the name of the medication that yes. being given and what it's for
1: yes exactly so it's and it, it gets dicey because tylenol has three different names depending if you're using a brand or a generic or if it's an IV form. So it's going to have three different names. So you have, you really have to dig into it and ask those questions. The other thing that nurses should be doing is scanning medications in front of you, because what that'll do is that will... Um, bring it up. If you're allergic to something, I I use an example in the book of somebody who was going to give somebody an antibiotic and didn't want to scan it. And they did. And the person was allergic. It popped right up so that they avoided that medication error. Um, but yes, definitely. If you're going to get hurt in a hospital, it's going to center around medications. And by the way, um, medical errors are now the fourth leading cause of death because COVID hit the third spot. So, Hmm.
0: Well, you note that 26% of patients who are readmitted to a hospital haven't been taking their medications properly. That's correct. And and the data shows that uh, 125,000 Americans die each year because they're not taking their medications?
1: Right. Exactly. Because of the high price of medications, um, some people can't don't have the luxury to be able to pay those prices. So there's, there's an example in there of insulin rationing. So a young, a young lady died because she was rationing her insulin and trying to get, to make it stretch out till she got her next paycheck. Um, 26% of Americans that don't take their medications, it's usually due to the fact that they have to make that decision. Am I going to buy food and eat, or am I going to buy medications? Or am I going to pay my rent? So it, the high drug prices, like I said, the very bipartisan issue, um, is something that we really need to do in this country. If we if we could do one thing politically, would be drive down these high drug prices and and allow people to actually get on a course of treatment that they can afford and that they'll stick with.
0: You mentioned uh, ambulatory surgical centers. What are the advantages of having surgery performed at an ASC? It will cost you a lot less.
1: Um, and plus you, it's usually a day surgery. Very rarely do people stay overnight, although that does occur. Um, the thing that you want to take into consideration is what kind of shape are you in? Because if you're, you know, if you're morbidly obese, diabetic, you've got congestive heart failure, you want to go to the hospital to have your surgery. Ambulatory surgical center is not a good place for you because if you have a complication, they can take care of you better there. If you're healthy and vibrant, maybe you're a runner and you blew your knee out, um, have your total knee at an ambulatory surgery center. Save yourself some money, um, save the insurance company some money and, you know, and make sure you check your doctor on CMS.gov to make sure they're a quality surgeon before you ever let anybody cut anywhere on your body. Um, Check out their star ratings.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Dr. David Wilcox. His book, How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American Healthcare System, it's a patient's handbook for survival. Well, will Medicare and Medicaid pay for much of the bill when people lose their insurance coverage? Well... (laughs)
1: Medicare pays 80%. So when somebody's saying Medicare for all, what they're really saying is um, community hospitals are going to close up because Medicare only pays 80%.
0: But if, and only if you have for med- certain things. So Like uh, going to the dentist, I'm, I'm told that uh, I, I really don't have a lot of coverage, even though I definitely am on Medicare. I'm over 65. Uh, so, so it doesn't cover that sort of thing. That's correct.
1: Um, and, you know, Medicare Advantage programs do cover that. But the difference, you know, with, with Medicare is somebody's got to pay that extra 20 percent. Now, the hospitals depend on the insurance companies to pay. They negotiate rates. So if you they say, you know, we're going to do six thousand total needs this year. So we're going to pay you X amount. And they negotiate a rate. If you walk in without insurance, they're going to charge you right through the roof um, because you, you don't have the power to negotiate even though you can do that with the financial office. Um, but so they really depend on that extra money to keep the doors open. So Medicare and gap insurance for all would probably be a better model than somebody just screaming Medicare for all um, and not understanding it. But the, but the important thing to know, Leonard, is that under a fee-based system, so basically when you show up to the doctor's office or the hospital, they're making money. So what we saw with covid was under a fee-based system. When people weren't accessing the hospitals, we the taxpayers had to bail those hospitals out to keep the doors open. There is a little known model out there. In fact, I read a research study just a couple of weeks ago that only 25% of the Americans, American public knows about. It's called value-based care. It's delivered through accountable care organizations, which means it's a network of doctors, dietitians, respiratory therapists, home care agencies that are responsible to keep you healthy and out of the hospital. The difference being that they get a certain amount to care for you during the year. If they can keep you healthy and out of the hospital, then they get to keep the difference as profit. If you end up going to the hospital, then they're going to have to pay extra money. Um, and, and they may not be able to, they may pay more than what, what they're getting in their capitated model. So a good example of that is my brother-in-law. He was getting a hip surgery done, and it was under something we refer to, a- and as a bundled payment, meaning that they got a certain amount of money to do his hip, and that was all they got. Um, and they want to keep their costs down so that they can keep the profit. Well, they prescribed my brother-in-law uh, uh, Percocets, which is. My brother in law, to my knowledge, has never taken illicit drugs or he doesn't drink alcohol. So giving him something that strong for pain mm-hmm. created a problem where he thought he was having a heart attack. His chest, was, his heart was beating out of his chest. So away they went to the emergency room and, you know, they figured it out quite quickly after doing a cardiac workup, which is not an inexpensive um, workup. To that he wasn't having a heart attack and then it was due to the pain medication. They put him on something um, less powerful. So my sister tells me the next day, oh, it's great. We had these nurses coming out to check on my husband because, you know, and it's all free. And I said, well, honey, it's not really free. I said, it's they got paid a certain amount to care for him and he ended up in the emergency department with a very costly cardiac workup so they're looking out after their own interests so i said they're not really looking out after your interests. um but a lot of people don't know that this is an option if you get into an accountable care organization the numbers show that you do a lot better you get you get your flu shot more if you're um, on medicare you get your eye exam more often they start to give you reminders Uh, If you end up with congestive heart failure, they'll give you remote devices at home so that they can intervene before you ever have to go to the emergency room. They can call you up and and say, "Hey Leonard, I noticed that you gained four pounds over the last couple days, and your Fitbit is telling me you're not walking as many steps. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm short of breath. I'm feeling a little weak. I I don't know if I got a bug or what I've got." And they can say, "Well, you know, but let's." get you a telehealth appointment, or let's get you into the office and adjust your medication so that you're not retaining as much fluid. That's the future of healthcare. Telehealth. Um, that's that's what we need. Well, telehealth and the fact that- And you're saying artificial deliders,
0: intellig- intelligence is also being applied.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, and and that, that will help because I can tell you as a clinician, I'm- much more sharp my first hour into a 12-hour shift than I am probably my last hour. Mm. Um, so having algorithms or predetermined uh, treatment plans for people with specific conditions is the way to go. But that, going back to value-based care, because I just want to drive that point home, that's what you want to be looked out. You want to you want to be in a value based care plan delivered by an accountable care organization. And many of the Medicare plans are doing that now because it saves them money and um, they don't have to be at risk. The insurance company doesn't have to be as at risk as they were in the past.
0: Is it there? Aren't there new concerns about who owns our health care data? What are, are the problems there? And aren't there data hackers?
1: Yeah, that's that's a big thing in healthcare right now. Um, people are hacking into hospital systems. I know of a few firsthand that, and then they charge them millions of dollars to get their data back. And who knows what they do with it in the meantime? Um, you know, in the old days, you weren't allowed to access your chart without having a nurse or a doctor with you because everything's you know it's based in Latin. Healthcare language is based in Latin, um, and so we would have to sit and go over patient's charts. Well, now you can actually download your information onto your Apple device, or we'll be able to, I think it's, I don't know if it's out yet, but it's, it's on its way out if it's not, and you can actually download it. And then you can decide what part of it you want to share. You can have your Fitbit and all your steps and your exercise regime, and you can even clock what you're eating if you want. Um, and then you can share it with the healthcare provider, but you're in charge of that data. Um, you know, I, your data is also housed in electronic medical records. So the hospital does have rights to it when you're an in, inpatient stay and, um, you know, getting genetically tested or, you know, those companies like, uh, one, two, 23 and um, me
0: and ancestry.com. Yeah, right.
1: So, you know, what they do is they, they, de-identify your information and then they sell it for research purposes or they give it away. Um, but your information's out there. And I have a story in the book about how they caught a killer in the San Francisco area. Um, because like, 20 of his relatives had had done that Ancestry.com and then joined it together because the two companies don't talk to each other, but there's another platform that does. And they were able to put it together and with the DNA that they had from the crime scene and find this guy like 30 years later. So, you know, once you put your genetic information out there, man, it's out there. You can't get it back.
0: Well, Uh, I could see where I'd be concerned if I were a killer. But, right. but but what about the rest of us? Isn't that an invasion of our privacy on some level? Uh, to de-identify the data and sell it? Yeah, I would yeah. say. Yes.
1: Um, but, you know, that's the model that they use. And, you know, a lot of people do it. Um, they do it the right way. They want to find out if they predispose to something, but they really need to talk to it. Uh, genetic counselor about that so that they know the pros and cons before they do it. Because some people will find out that they're predisposed to cancer or something and they may never develop it, but it just sits with them and can you handle that kind of information? Um, and what about other members of your family who find out that they may be predisposed because of you know your testing? If you share that information with them, so it's something you really want to think through. It's not something that you should just you know spit in a tube to find out if you got another brother somewhere. I think
0: mm-hmm. or where your grandfather came from, uh, you right? You're right that value based care is the next phase in healthcare. How is it different from the current system?
1: Well, like I said, you're incentivized to keep to keep the population that you take care of healthy and out of the hospital so they get creative. Right. So under a fee for service, if you don't show up, then um, I don't get paid. So, you know, you coming in to see me is a good thing Um, under value based care. I want you to be healthy and I want you want you to stay out of the hospital. And so that requires more care. That requires a dedicated team, which you can't get under a fee for service because it's all disjointed. So, you know, your specialist may send notes to your doctor who may or may not read them. Well, under value-based care, you better believe when that specialist sends a note to your primary doctor, he's reading it because he's incentivized to keep you healthy and keep you out of the system.
0: What lessons have we learned from the COVID pandemic? Anything new? That's interesting.
1: So I would say one of the things that a lot of people don't know about is the flu vaccine that you take is a variant of the 1918 Spanish flu. So for me, um, it was interesting to watch this unfold because the pharmaceutical companies jumped right in. They stopped what they were doing to to make vaccines. And that and that was a good thing for well, all of us. Only
0: some pharmaceuticals. I did a show on this and many pharmaceutical companies don't like vaccines because it, there's just a kind of they see it as a one payment thing. They prefer to to develop drugs that you got to take throughout the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, and that's true. But they should really study the 1918 yeah, Spanish well, flu. they done very because, well with with COVID actually. Yeah, because that was a hundred year strategy, right? That wasn't a one-time payment. Everybody is getting flu shots. People are still getting flu shots and the pharmaceutical companies are making money. So, the ones that really knew that jumped right in to make these vaccines because they know people are going to be taking them for the next hundred years. Hey, Heck, they might be taking them twice a year now, you know? So, we don't know what's going to happen, but um, the good thing is this is kind of what happened before, you know, this this variant, this new variant that can that uh, just recently came out. Um, it's starting to dummy itself down it's, from what we can see early in the data. It's a little bit more infectious, but it's not as severe as the Delta um, variant was. So now we're starting to see people are either Delta was so big that you either got antibodies through the vaccine or you caught it. And if you survived it, you had antibodies. Um, so it's really doesn't have a wide range of what it can do now, because there's a lot of antibodies running around in people. So it's come; it's going to become more of like what we saw with 1918 Spanish flu, something that a certain amount of people get some people who are immunocompromised, that kind of stuff. Um, so it, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. I think.
0: Well, in the um, in the ninety seconds that we have left, I'm wondering where you see us going from here. What direction do you think the healthcare system needs to move in to holistically care for us?
1: Yeah, I think that they need to be more at risk for their patient populations. It's you get fat and happy when you're showing up and I can charge for an extra test or two or whatever. Um, But under a value based care model, it's things change. People are healthier and the data shows it and 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 proves that. So that's what I think needs to happen in the American healthcare system.
0: My guest uh, is uh, Dr. David Wilcox. His book, "How to Avoid Being a Victim of the American <clears throat> Excuse Me Healthcare System: A Patient's Handbook for Survival," uh, Doctor Wilcox is a doctorate-prepared nurse who also holds a master's in health administration and is board-certified in nursing uh, information. He has 28 years or more of healthcare experience in which he's worked as a bedside nurse, a hospital administrator, and in healthcare information technology which has helped him to develop his unique perspective on the American healthcare system. And it has been my great pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leonard. I appreciate it. And guys, be safe out there. (laughs) I'm going to try. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over... 500 past shows at wbai.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. You'll also find links to our past shows at leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is at WBAI.org. WBAI is undergoing a serious financial crisis as a result of the pandemic, so I'm asking everyone who has the means to do so to step up right now and support the station as we struggle to stay afloat during this difficult time. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't already taken that step to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now so that we can keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, but that means that we rely totally on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air, and it's the way this crazy experiment in completely listener-sponsored radio works. So if you like The fact that no corporate overlords are telling us how to do this show, why not come on board and help us to keep it going? Um, We may not have all the -the state-of-the-art cutting-edge technology here at WBAI, but we are refreshingly independent. So give us that call, 212-209-2950 or go online to Give to WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And consider becoming a BAI buddy, a sustaining member at $10, $15, $20 a month. But however you become a member, the important thing is to make that call now. Again, the number, 212-209-2950, or go online to Give to WBAI.org. And a great thanks from all of us at the station to everyone who's already contributed. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when attorney Richard Jacobs will discuss his book, Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder. We'll see you then.